0: Hello, and welcome to Grand Final History. In this special supplementary episode, we celebrate some trailblazing football media pioneers in Victoria. Visionaries who laid the groundwork for how football games were reported, establishing traditions and techniques that continue in the modern multimedia platform world we have today. In the early decades of the VFL, the only media was print either daily or weekly newspapers, magazines, or the matchday football record. Imagine a world where the only way to find out how your team had performed was to either go to the game, talk to someone who'd been there, or read about it in one of the newspapers. And we should also remember that the VFA was also given significant coverage, as well as updates on country, midweek, and interstate competitions. Football broadcasts and football shows on radio began to emerge on that exciting new technology in the late 1920s, but our focus in this podcast is mainly on the print media. While countless journalists contributed to the shaping of the narrative of the VFL's formative years, we've narrowed our spotlight to six remarkable men. We'll delve into their stories, unveiling the tales of these pioneers who played pivotal roles in shaping the media landscape of their era, and we'll let the part tell the whole. To explore more about these unsung heroes of footy journalism, whose work provides us with so much history of the game, check out the links on grandfinalhistory.au. I owe a debt of gratitude to the talented historians and sports enthusiasts whose dedicated work has provided me with invaluable resources that allow these stories to be told. In the early 20th century, it was customary for journalists to use pseudonyms. Whether to safeguard privacy, evade legal challenges, or, possibly, create the illusions of a larger editorial team, these pseudonyms were a staple of the era. For example, Donald MacDonald, who we'll talk about later, wrote about football and cricket as Observer, but also had a weekly column as Woomera and sometimes just signed off under the initials DM. That tradition changed about the middle of the 20th century. Sometimes the reporters became personalities. Sometimes it was former players moving into the media. For example, ex john player Jumbo Sharland wrote under his own name from the 1920s onwards. So, let's hear some of the stories of these media personalities and find out their real names too. We'll start with Kikero. Arguably, one of the most influential agents on how footy has been reported. In an era when the other main newspapers, the Argus and the Age, might just give a few paragraphs or, eventually, a few columns to football coverage, Kikoro and the Herald were using a half page or a full page to celebrate the stories and the news. He introduced the use of cartoons, follow up interviews with players and coaches after games, profile pieces, updates on each club. Tipping predictions from expert panels of players, coaches and officials. And many more innovations. Innovations in his times that are still with us today. And let's not forget, also getting match reports to the Saturday afternoon editions of The Herald with scores and clear descriptions of the games just minutes after the match finished. A turnaround time to print that would be hard to match with today's technology. Kikuro's real name was Thomas or Tom Kellinack. He was born in Bendigo in 1868, and his early journalism career was at the Bendigo Advertiser, where he developed his skills in two domains that would become his focus throughout his career, sport and crime. Sometimes they could even coincide. After serving his apprenticeship, he moved to Melbourne, aged 21, to join The Herald, the popular afternoon newspaper. If you did not grow up with newspapers, They either came out in the morning, to be read over breakfast or on the way to work, or the Herald in the afternoon, picked up on the journey home to find out what had happened during the day. Kikoro was enthusiastic about football, wherever it was played. Not just VFL, but the association, Wednesday league games, competitions in other states, and suburban or country leagues. To him, football was more than a game. It was, in his words, the cheapest sport in the world offering a magnificent spectacle for a mere nine pence. As well as breaking news and promoting the game in the Herald, Kikaru was one of the drivers in establishing the football record, sold at every game with player numbers and news about the game. He did more than just report on football. He was well known for his command of the critical skill of shorthand, a way of rapidly writing down what people said in a time well before taped, or digital recorders. This led to a role on the Hansard staff in Parliament, capturing the official record of what was said in parliamentary debates. Away from the high society of politicians or the excitement of sports, he was a respected crime reporter. He wrote on crime and court cases for 40 years. He was a confidant of the police commissioner. And he must have had some good contacts with the criminal community, too. At one point, police trailed him for days to find his sources, but he gave nothing away. Tom Kellynac would retire in 1930, after Collingwood's fourth Premiership win in a row, this time against Geelong. He received an official gift from the VFL to honour his services, the first given by the league to a reporter. A photo of him reporting his last match was hung in the boardroom at Harrison House, the league's headquarters. Tom Kellynac died after a long illness in 1936 and his funeral was attended by representatives from the sporting competitions and associations across the country, a celebration of the life of a pioneering reporter of football, sport and more. However, for some unfathomable reason, and despite the significant contribution to the Australian football and the way the game is reported to this day, Tom Kelinek has not been inducted into the Australian Football Hall of Fame, an omission that hopefully will be rectified in the near future. Our next early journalist wrote in the Weekly Australasian and went by the name Markwell. His real name was John Healy. His column ran from 1888 to 1911, covering the growth of the VFA and the emergence of the VFL after the split of 1897. Healy was a skilled cricketer and footballer and was one of the founders of the Hotham Football Club, which would become better known as the North Melbourne Football Club, he played one game for Victoria in a team that defeated New South Wales at the Sydney Cricket Ground in 1881. In 1910, the league was grappling with the challenge of shammaturism, where the code was officially amateur, but it was widely acknowledged that many players were getting paid at most clubs. Healy advocated for a return to higher principles, so, in his words, reputable young men may participate without losing caste. He was not a supporter of voting rights for all club members either. Healy suggested that voting membership at clubs should cost four times an ordinary membership to ensure clubs would be run on respectable lines. Presumably, he believed those who could afford to pay more would vote for committee members that would not stoop to the low level of paying players in the pursuit of premierships, I suspect a very optimistic attitude. Healy became secretary of the Victorian Cricket Association, holding the position until his death in 1916. 1916. He literally died at work in his chair in the association rooms in East Melbourne. His funeral was well attended with representatives from various sporting associations, the VCA, the editor of the Australasian, and many more. In their tribute, the Argus wrote, Mr. Healy was known throughout Australia. He had a pleasing style, sound judgement and a knowledge of the game. While his sincere championing of the amateur cause may have been out of step with the changing times, his commitment to sport and football cannot be questioned. And his is one of the voices that provides the history of the game as it passed through some of its most turbulent moments. As you may have noticed from our first two pioneer football writers, journalists at this time worked across many fields, not just sport. Our next writer demonstrated his talents across multiple fields. Observer wrote for the Argus for 50 years. His real name was Donald MacDonald, and in addition to writing about sport, he had been the first Australian war correspondent in the Boer War in South Africa, and also had a passion reporting. And communicating on natural history. His last column, On Nature Notes, was written from his sickbed just before he died, aged 76, and published as per the regular schedule for his Nature Notes column a few days later. Born in Vitroy in 1859, MacDonald started his working life as a teacher in 1876 before joining the Corowa Free Press and then moving to the Argus in 1881. In 1899, he travelled to South Africa, correctly anticipating the outbreak of hostilities which began while he was sailing across the Indian Ocean. While reporting on the Boer War, he was caught up in the Siege of Ladysmith, a town in Natal. The siege lasted from the start of November to the end of February 1900, a bitter battleground that would have left its mark on everyone who lived through it. Indeed, Macdonald was lucky to survive a bout of dysentery, which was as much a threat as the bullets and artillery. The siege was ended, and Macdonald recovered his health as he sailed back to Australia, where his dispatches were republished as a book, How We Kept the Flag Flying, which led to a year travelling Australia and New Zealand, giving lectures in town halls and theatres on the Boer War and his experiences. MacDonald was also renowned as a cricket writer, travelling overseas with every Australian cricket team for 40 years, and he changed the way the game was reported, moving on from a facts and figures approach and what happened to the first, second and third ball, to an overall descriptive picture of the flow of the game, the character of the game, the spectators and the ground, bringing the entire game to life for the reader, while maintaining an impartial view. In the Media Hall of Fame, Gideon Hay says of Macdonald, by all accounts, Macdonald spoke as he wrote, mellifluously, anecdotally, humorously. Colleagues from his era said, No one who, knowing his name well and admiring his work, met him for the first time, was surprised by anything he found. His work, his method of expression, was so much a part of the man that he was a real stranger to few in his own country. It was also said that Macdonald was about the most versatile man on the Melbourne Press and one of the best known journalists in Australia. As a writer on nature he influenced generations. According to the Argus, many children who first saw their own country through the eyes of Donald Macdonald have learned to know it and love it through their own. Macdonald died of emphysema on the twenty third of november nineteen thirty two at Black Rock. Writing until almost the last moment, a memorial fountain is in Macdonald Park. though Morris, our next journalist, old boy, was writing at a similar time, also in the Daily Argus and the Weekly Australasian. Reginald Wilmot is his real name. He was a former Essendon footballer who also reported on sport for 50 years. Wilmot is the only one of the writers profiled in this podcast that has been inducted into the Australian Football Hall of Fame in the media category. While not denying the merit of this achievement, it is an extraordinary gap that he is the only one of these pioneering recorders of the game that has been elevated. So much of the history of the game would be lost without all of these men, and we can only hope that others will have their contribution recognised by the keepers of the code. Back to Reg, old boy Wilmot, or, as he was known to his friends, Bung. Born in Tubbet in the Snowy Mountains in 1869, he was on track to study law, but his time at Trinity College, Melbourne University, came to an abrupt end when he was involved in a protest against the night warden. Wilmot was one of the students who burnt an effigy of the warden outside the warden's house. The warden stayed, and Wilmot left Trinity after that, and made his start in the business world, but soon moved to writing starting with the Argus in 1889. He played 51 games for Essendon in their VFA days between 1890 and 94. And, while we will discuss his career reporting on football and sport, he was a man of many achievements, including Secretary of the Melbourne Athenaeum from 1909 to 1949, and author of the Athenaeum's history in 1939, as well as transforming the Athenaeum Hall into the Athenaeum Theatre, where you may have even watched a concert or two. Chairman of the Royal Melbourne Hospital Birthday League, which over many years raised £30,000 for the Royal Melbourne Hospital, which is about $2.8 million in today's money. The primary fundraiser was encouraging people to give a donation to the hospital on their birthday instead of receiving a gift. Subscribers were issued a certificate showing the amount of time their contribution helped to maintain the hospital. Let's get back to Wilman's many achievements and contributions. He was also a board member of the Royal Melbourne Hospital, Vice President of the English-speaking Union, Secretary of the Royal Humane Society for over 40 years, a member of the Lord Mayor's Charity Fund Committee, a life member of the Yorick Club, which was a club formed in Melbourne for men involved in arts and science a fellow of the Institute of Chartered Secretaries, which is now known as the Chartered Governance Institute, and an organiser of several Victorian amateur boxing and wrestling competitions. Wilmot also wrote several books, including Defending the Ashes, after the infamous Bodyline series. On the topic of bodyline, there are some who attribute the word bodyline to Wilmot, but the evidence supports another journalist of the time, Hugh Buggy. Wilmot was another true believer in the merits of amateurism, playing the game for the sake of the game, and he was strongly opposed to the growing professionalism of VFL football, arguing that professional football did not improve the calibre of a man and did nothing to improve the sport, and, as such, was of no value to the community. But, despite his concerns on the impact of money on the game, he was still able to report on the players, the matches, and the unfolding of each season as it passed. Wilmot retired in 1935 and he was presented with a mahogany log box by the president of the VFL, Dr. McCallan, in appreciation of his 46 years of service to Australian football. Only the second journalist after Kickeroo to receive such an honour from the league. Inducted into the Australian Football Hall of Fame in 1996, his citation read: His work. Was characterized by authority, wisdom, and generosity. Despite his retirement, Wilmot continued to contribute articles to the Australasian up to 1945, when he was sharing reminiscences from what must have been a very large set of scrapbooks. Wilmot died in 1949, aged almost 80 years, and is buried at the Box Hill Cemetery. Our next profile is of a man who set the template for coaches, whether it be their duties to the club their club's tendencies to sack them, and the opportunity to turn a coaching career into a media career. Many modern-day coaches have followed up their successes at one or more clubs with a media career, but one man did it first in the VFL. Jack Worrell was a pioneer as the first coach in the VFL, leading Carlton from 1902 and achieving a premiership hat-trick in 1906, 07, and 08. A player revolt saw him leave the Blues in 1909 and join Essendon in 1911 for two more premierships, and beginning a newspaper career that spanned decades. The first coach in the VFL, the first coach to win a premiership, and the first to win premierships at multiple clubs, and the first VFL coach to move into a long-term media career. A man that deserves to be much better known today, and not just for what he achieved in the VFL. Worrell was born on the Victorian goldfields in June 1861, during the gold rush that provided the first economic boom to the colony. A childhood in Maryborough was followed by a move to Ballarat, where his performance against the visiting English cricket side, while playing for a Ballarat 18, saw him selected for Victoria in 1883. By 1884 he'd moved to Melbourne and joined the emerging Fitzroy Football Club in the early years of the VFA. He also played for the Fitzroy Cricket Club. He achieved success in both sports. In cricket, he would play 11 tests for Australia, including a tour of England in 1888, and again late in his career in 1899. In local cricket, he moved to Carlton in 1896, scoring an Australian record of 417, not out, against university. His leadership qualities were recognised, And he captained Victoria 16 times. As a footballer, he was recognised as a champion player. The Argus named him as Player of the Year in 1890, and he captained Fitzroy from 1896 to 1892, except for the season spent in England on Ashes duties. He played his final season of football in 1893, which allowed him to focus more on cricket. And he played his final cricket for Victoria, aged 40 in 1902. In that pivotal year, He was appointed as Secretary of the Carlton Football Club, matching the role he had with the Carlton Cricket Club. But rather than just focus on managing the club's administrative affairs, Worrell moved to manage or coach the football team as well, organising and leading training sessions, instructing the players, setting team tactics and lifting the team's performance from mediocre to a premiership hat-trick. He was a determined man, and sure of his ways, which inevitably created tensions. He was sacked by the Carlton committee in 1904, before being reinstated after that committee was voted out. At the time, he said he was not a convenient fool, and he would not always do as he was told. Despite going on to lead the club to a Premiership hat-trick, another clash of personalities and other issues resulted in him becoming the first reigning Premiership coach to resign for the good of the club in 1909, have a listen to the episodes covering 1904 to 1909 to learn more about Worrell's impact on Carlton and the wider game. Appointed to Essendon in 1911, he achieved back-to-back premierships in 1911 and 12, for a total of five premierships, equal third of all coaches in the VFL AFL's long history. Worrell was a regular contributor to the Sydney sports newspaper, The Referee and in 1912 began writing columns for the Australasian, a weekly paper published by the Argus. Initially writing under the very thinly disguised pseudonym of JW, he would eventually write under his own name. But I think everyone who read his insightful columns knew who the author was right from the start. He wrote on cricket during the summer, and his name has also been tossed around as the originator of the term body line, But as mentioned earlier, this honour belongs to Hugh Buggy. The likely truth is that Worrell, Wilmot and Buggy were probably discussing the tactic in the press box and it was Buggy that got it to press first. John Ritchie, in the Australian Dictionary of Biography, described Worrell's writing thus. For over 20 years, his columns were characterised by poised sentences and a rich vocabulary. For all its partisanship, His direct prose was spiced with comparison, reminiscence and prediction, and conveyed a sense of drama. Oral did more than coach and write about the game. He was instrumental in the establishment of the Australian Football Council, serving as a delegate from the VFL. In recognition of his services, he was later made a life member of the council. He also helped draft changes to the game's rules, and was actively involved in the wording of regulations and interpretations for example, the controversial changes to the out-of-bounds rules of the late 1920s. And, in yet another anomaly in the Australian Football Hall of Fame, Worrell is inducted, but only as a player. However, Carlton did not forget their first coach, and in 2017, on the 80th anniversary of Worrell's death, the Carlton Football Club placed a clerk on the southeastern brick wall of the Inner Circle Railway Bridge on Royal Parade. It recognises Jack Worrell's contribution to football, cricket and journalism. If you're visiting Princess Park, head north along Royal Parade to pay your respects to this pioneer. Worrell was contributing columns to the Australasian up to the 6th of November 1937, shortly before his death on the 17th of the same month. In honour of Worrell, the flags at the MCG, the scene of so many of his sporting triumphs, flew at half mast during the Sheffield Shield match his funeral at Heidelberg attracted a massive crowd of former footballers, cricketers, journalists and administrators. A final profile is on a man that personified the changing nature of the media landscape, the impact of new technologies and who was literally from another generation. Wallace Jumbo Sharland would become the first ex-VFL player to become a major media personality and would be the first to broadcast the game on radio, the new media technology emerging in the late 1920s and early 1930s. Born in Geelong in 1902, when Victoria was now part of Australia, rather than a colony of Britain, he made his debut with Geelong in 1920, playing until 1925 for 49 games. He wasn't bad at cricket either, scoring 102 for Geelong at the Correo Oval against a touring England in 1921. Jumbo's print career began in 1923, while he was still playing for Geelong, when he joined the newly established Sporting Globe. He had wanted to move to a Melbourne-based club, given his new job, but Geelong would not clear him. He might well have played for Geelong in their first VFL Premiership in 1925, but a broken wrist in Round 8 limited him to four games in his final season. Rather than play in the Grand Final he became the first person to broadcast a grand final, having described the preliminary final in the first ever VFL game broadcast a week earlier. In an article published decades later in 1964, he recalled the early broadcasts being done from the back of the old Smith sand, without any soundproof box or protection from the crowd. The accompanying sound could be pretty fierce when the excitement rose. Even in 1964, Charlton demonstrated the insight that had led him to embrace radio as a career when it was in its infancy when he spoke about the new TV telecast of the VFL games. He said that the matches should be shown live on TV without harming the game. The young would still go for the excitement of being at the game and many more would be able to watch, increasing the overall popularity of the game. But it would be decades before the league allowed entire games to be shown live in Melbourne. Now we take it for granted. Charland wrote extensively in the Sporting Globe, providing both descriptions of games on Saturday editions and on Wednesdays there were player profiles, analysis of the season and updates from the clubs and more. He left the Sporting Globe in 1933, embracing radio broadcasting as a full-time career, working for the ABC and then 3XY, similar in a way to journalists who made the jump to online media when the internet emerged in the modern era some even credit charland as giving vfa club preston their nickname the bull ants when he described the players as a group of dusty bull ants given they were small and wore a red jumper jumbo began writing when print was the only way to learn about the game he was pivotal in the introduction of radio broadcasting of football and saw with clear eyes the benefits that television would bring to the game. Jumbo Sharlan died in 1967, aged 64. There were many other writers on football in Victoria and in other states, but let these profiles act as a reminder of the great service given to the game, letting people know how their team performed each Saturday, how the season unfolded, and sharing some of the -the behind-the-scenes gossip of the day, all helping to increase the VFLs and football's popularity, creating pathways for players and coaches after their playing or coaching days, and giving us a history of the game that we can draw on today. I hope you've enjoyed this detour from the regular episodes. Next time, we'll be back with Season 1933. If you've enjoyed Grand Final History, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast from. The more goals we kick, the easier it is for others to find the podcast. If you have questions or you want to leave feedback, email me at info at grandfinalhistory.au or check out the grandfinalhistory.au website or Facebook and Twitter for more Grand Final History.